Welcome to Cardinal Conversations, a career podcast for the Catholic University of America. My name is Brad LePrad. I'm the Director of Career Development and Professional Networking in the Office of Alumni Engagement, and I'm joined with my colleague, the Associate Director of Employer Relations and Assessment, Dr. Ryan Cheatham. Hi. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? It's good. We're good. in the throes of summer, so that's nice. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, I like how higher education does the shift in the summer. Mm. Um, and it's just a time I feel like for everyone to rejuvenate a bit, mm-hmm. go back to the drawing board when it comes to programs, faculty can take some time to breathe, yeah. come up with new curriculum, syllabi, that type of thing. Yeah. Everyone's brains get to just rest. <laughs> <laughs> so it feels good. Yeah. Those yeah. first few weeks after finals and graduation are over, it's just what happened for the past <laughs> academic year just trying to figure out what what did we just experience together and and now we're really into planning and preparing and getting things set for the fall and yeah. even into the spring so our events calendars coming together we've talked about ideas and things that we're going to work on between our two offices well i'm excited to hear what has brought our guests today from where they were when they were students to where they are now so yeah we turn to that? let's do it Welcome to our conversation with a Cardinal. This is the main segment of Cardinal Conversations podcast. We are so excited to have with us today, Ryan, Daniel Forrester. Daniel is a graduate of the class of 1993 with a BA in English, and he has done many things. He went on to get an MBA. He's done consulting. He's exploring things in the tech world. He's an adjunct professor, wow. course creator, many, many things. And so I'm looking forward to hearing more about his career path, the things that he's working on now, and where especially he thinks the future of work is going, something that we'll talk about a little bit later in our conversation. But Ryan, mm. where do you think we should start with Daniel? Can you share with us what your career journey has been like since leaving Catholic University? Happy to. Uh, and thank you both for inviting me to be on. It's a pleasure. I appreciate these conversations. I've been listening to them in the months since you guys launched it. My career path since Catholic University, I'd probably say it's been an interesting ride. When I when I was at Catholic University in 93 as a graduate or coming up on it, I I think that one of the most powerful things that a school like Catholic University offers is the unbelievable opportunity to participate in the workforce of Washington, D.C. There's very few places in the United States, I think, where a young person can really be in rooms very quickly, way ahead of where they might have been in a more sort of you know nuanced and sequential career. Washington, D.C. puts you in rooms if you're willing to hustle for it, extraordinary rooms very early. And so when I was at CUA, my thinking at the time was as an English major, that journalism was where I was going to go. And my brother at the time, I had my, one of my big brothers was working for Peter Jennings uh, at ABC News when, when that man was the number one newscast in the, in the world. And now we've, we've changed all of that. So I, I had long thought that journalism and using my writing skills would be a part of my career. And in fact, actually, I worked and and got a job in my junior year 
into my senior year that actually stayed with me for a little bit after Catholic U with a very early organization that eventually became Fox News, believe it or not. It was mm. the precursor to it. It was an extraordinary opportunity to work for, you know, a, a fledgling news organization that on the cusp of cable change and the and the world that was going to be wired. So that was that was where I thought I was going to go. And then I came out and I wound up working for a trade association with a pretty horrible culture. Mm. I wound up going back to England to do another internship after I had I'd worked in the British campaign in 1992, thanks to my internship at Catholic University. One of my best friends was running a lobbying firm, and he offered me an incredible opportunity to spend a year over there. So all of a sudden, I started thinking about lobbying, came back to the United States, and was thinking about a career possibly in politics. Journalism was sort of hovering and I wound up working for a, a lobbyist group after my internship with a lobbying firm in London that, again, not a culture that I would ever wish on anyone, but a, an, an amazing experience in the sense that I got to have a front row seat to how CEOs and leadership teams started to think. And then I realized that while Catholic U had helped to you know sort of perfect the poet in me, my lack of skills in business and lack of really understanding the language of economics and business was was really holding me back. And so I wound up going to graduate school. Uh, and from there, the world was changing. And I think that's a theme, I would say, probably in my career has been seeing when the inevitable trends are in front of you and realizing that you've got to shift. Mm -hmm. And the world was changing dramatically as the internet didn't exist and then did. And that was an, a really transformative moment. So I came out of a, a wonderful graduate school that that absolutely changed my life, changed the way I saw the world, and wound up spending 13 years at a, at a company out of Boston, literally situated next to MIT, that had the audacity and, and the humility to mm -hmm. think about what a wired world would look like. And we're putting the front end on companies as the internet was changing every aspect of our lives. So spent a bunch of years there and then built a bunch of businesses and realized that I generally didn't love most of my bosses uh, and, <laughs> uh, and wrote a book or so along the line and wanted to find my own voice. And then eventually I realized that I had entrepreneurship in me and, and started my own company about 11 or so years ago. And now, now I'm doing that uh, again and again. So uh, the the only descriptor I would say is, you know, just sort of, following gut intuition, seeing the inevitable trends. I, I think inevitable trends are something that every graduate has to really step back. And inevitable is a very strong word. I'm stealing that from a dear friend of mine, Thomas Barnett. Tom's a great strategist. And when you think about an inevitable trend, whether it's a population change, technology waves, chasing an inevitable trend, I think is a really smart way to think about your career and gaining expertise. So an eclectic ride from poet to aspiring economist, although I don't <laughs> have the title economist and and really collecting just an amazing set of experiences along the way and 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 being in rooms that I'm still amazed that I've I've been in half the rooms that I've been in. Yeah. And maybe something that you just said there is a good segue into a question that can get us into some deeper topics to talk about and see what you think. So you did study English as an undergraduate. You mentioned you went to graduate school, got your MBA, you've started businesses, but 
you mentioned that Catholic has perfected the poet in you. And so there's this sense that mm -hmm. the liberal arts is kind of the foundation of all the things that you have done, the person that you are. And so I'm just wondering if you can talk about the role that you see liberal arts education playing in your own life through developing businesses and being a professional, but even since we're talking about the future of work as well and kind of the inevitable trends that are coming, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the role of the liberal arts in a world of burgeoning AI. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really, that's a powerful question. Um, yeah, so we can take those in parts. It's those are big <laughs> questions. <laughs> let me let me uh, let me make uh, I'll make you an offer on the the idea of sort of the value of liberal arts and and now liberal arts in the context of AI. I'll I'll probably hit that separate. So yeah, you know, if I think back to you know the idea of wanting to start uh, and pursue liberal arts, when you think about primary education in the in the United States in many ways, although it's changing now because we're devaluing things like history, we're devaluing some of the larger, harder conversations we should have. In many ways, the experience of most of us in grammar school and more is a liberal arts education. It's, it's exposure to music, it's exposure to history, it's exposure to the political realm. It's the idea to me that you want to become an expert in all things and being able to switch context, to be curious, to realize that you may not have an avocation in one aspect, but one of the firmest beliefs I hold in my mind is that we live in a world that is wildly horizontal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the verticalization of the world that when we hear, and I'm, I have no phobia whatsoever of STEM, and I respect STEM, talk about that because the STEM sort of awakening has, I think, over-indexed so many in the world to this idea that if it's binary, if it's not science, technology, environment, engineer, et cetera, and math, then it's not. Well, that's that's nonsense. Hmm. As a human being, we are we are multifaceted. We value so many different things. So a liberal arts education, to me, is the art of learning to think horizontally, being able to make an argument cohesively. My my father, uh, when my father was an attorney, and and he would often ask me, and and I would ask him about the law. And my mom really wanted me to become a lawyer. And my my father just sort of taught me early on that if you can write you can think. And we'll, we'll come on chat GPT here in a minute because it's doing a lot of writing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this idea of curiosity, of being able to cut across, I just think we devalue that in such a way when we make it binary that the more, let's just call it more binary sciences, the evidence-based sciences, and again, I have no phobia of science, technology, math, et cetera, as I say it. But humanities expose us to humans and science and math expose us to more, more patterns of logic. It's the two together that are absolutely essential hmm. for a career. But there's a there's sort of a right hook in my view from a humanities perspective and, and liberal arts that I think is, is really perhaps going to be one of the superpowers for students in the next decade to come. And that is two things. One is unbelievable curiosity. If you are not curious, 
about how the world works. And if you're not doing the work to figure out what is my point of view, what do I believe about how this world operates? What are the most fundamental assumptions? Math can get you somewhere there and it gets you to a very logical view of the world. Liberal arts gets you to a nuanced and storytelling side of that that I think is so powerful. And the second piece of the value of a liberal arts degree to me, and, and I think about Heather McGowan as someone that I would I always advise young people to pay a lot of attention to Heather McGowan. She's she's put a language set on the future of learning and thinking. And what she's taught us is and her her message over and over is that learning and continuous learning is the new pension. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's I'm quoting her there. And what she's saying is that every time we have an inflection point, which is seems like it's incessant now, from technology, from seismic shocks, from geopolitical shocks, from all from pandemics, that if you have an innate curiosity and an ability to learn at scale, you have a chance at relevancy, not a guarantee, but it really is a superpower in a world of such change and tumult. And so when I think about talking to students about, you know, I just finished my my master's degree or this degree, and I said, that's fantastic. Your next master's degree is the next 18 months. Your next PhD is your next 24 months. Mm-hmm. It is going to be the people that have an unbelievable capacity to learn, adapt, and to continuously challenge their worldview mm-hmm. that is the most valuable to me in the rooms that I've been privileged to be in because we want expansive thinkers capable of looking at the world horizontally. Mm-hmm. And yes, we need vertical thinkers when we're doing surgery, when we're imagining writing code, when we're doing all the wonderful things that science brings us, but make no mistake, without curiosity, constant learning and storytelling, the world just doesn't move forward. So the liberal arts degree to me has tremendous utility and the yes and on it is that you cannot divorce yourself from the STEM side of the equation. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Dan, I have a question for you in follow-up to, to what you were saying. I was at a conference uh, last summer with the National Association of Colleges and Employers, and there was a lot of talk around the debulking of a degree mm. and the idea of taking the skill sets and the knowledge base that's acquired through the matriculation of whatever curriculum that's chosen and putting certifications around them. And it's controversial, right? So what would be your your take on that, the debulking of the degree? And there was a lot of focus on the liberal arts degree. Really, I had not heard that phrase. That's really yeah. interesting to hear that phrase. Mm-hmm. I'll just share. So my my sense of this is that the whether we're talking about the challenging the the status quo of a bachelor's mm-hmm. degree, a master's degree, and a PhD, mm-hmm. I, I think there you know th- there's a continuum of learning that is so necessary. If you're going to declare yourself an expert in this world, for for goodness sake, you you can't just snack on content. Right. So you know, to me, the mm-hmm. the, the 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 pathways to expertise have gateways that are globally recognized, right? A PhD actually means something. Mm-hmm. A, a master's degree should mean something. Now, what what your what that conference was perhaps getting at was mm-hmm. that we're in, in the world of constant learning, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. where are we with regards to other credentialing? And I, mm -hmm. I think that what we're seeing is the the emergence of micro credentialing mm -hmm. is now here. Yeah. And strangely enough, when I the, the first time I even heard that phrase, I was working with the the CEO of of AARP, and they they do an amazing job watching trends that are happening. You know technology trends, secular trends, and more. And they were watching a aging workforce mm -hmm. that had all sorts of adoption of people over the age of 50 looking to get not another degree. They didn't want to get another degree. They wanted to get pockets of expertise. And so when you now see where we are in micro-credentialing mm -hmm. and where you're watching the proliferation of this with massive open online courses, I just, I just produced my first one and learned a ton about this space mm. you know this idea of being able to go deep on a piece of content mm -hmm. not necessarily to become an expert not necessarily to be validated per se by uh, a bachelor's or a master's or a phd but to say that i need to put into my toolbox some way to attack a problem gain the vocabulary understand some use cases and samples I think that that is a absolute right hook necessity. And mm. I just can't encourage them enough to realize that the micro-credentialing through and in and around particularly STEM-based topics, not because you're going to become a coder, but my goodness, you better understand how code is written. You really have to understand it. You really under have to understand that product managers inside companies, these are the people who are realizing for all of us that the first touch with every institution these days mm -hmm. is a digital touch. Yeah. It's not an analog. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if we ordered a pizza right now, gang, we're, we're going on the website. It's right. a digital right. Pulling up the Domino's app on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't want you to call, by the way, right? They, they, they want us to automate that through. Well, far beyond a ordering a pizza is recognizing that every, every firm that exists in the world has to interact digitally and analog and that that right hook of of connecting those dots of 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 credentialing on the edge of all the amount of knowledge that's being created in the stem world i think mm. that's that's the yes and that i would offer mm. i think micro credentials will stay i have a hard time believing that micro credentialing will replace someone being declared a doctor that's capable of opening up someone's heart. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that micro-credentialing signals to a workforce, signals to your employer that you are wildly curious and you are very unsatisfied that the amount of knowledge you were going to gain in college or a master's degree was sufficient. And if Heather McGowan is right, that learning is the new pension, then micro-credentials are your, your low-cost ticket to relevancy, in my view. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of things. And if we were doing true justice to our conversation, we would need to probably record at least four episodes <laughs> right. uh, to, to tackle these things. But you, you said some things and Ryan, your question, I think, speaks to the, the same idea here. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've noticed as somewhat of a historian myself, there seems to have been a loss in the last, I don't know, 50 or 60 years of the polymath, of the renaissance man or woman, so to speak, of the person who is fluent in a number of languages, languages being literal human languages, but biology, physics, chemistry, mathematics, you name it. 
given our current context with the rise of generative AI and the need to more or less have some level of fluency kind of across the board in this horizontal thinking paradigm that you've laid out, it seems like we might be coming to an age where there's a reemergence of the polymath, of the mm -hmm. Renaissance person, maybe not to the extent where we have and we probably don't even want this, we have thousands of Newtons walking around. But if we're going to lead organizations, if we're going to contribute meaningfully to society, we've got to be able to be conversant at least in a number of technologies. And so uh, I'm just wondering, do you have any reflections on that, maybe specifically with an AI bent? I do. By the way, you're uh, waxing eloquent there, Brett. You know, I, I attack your your question. I love your question. And I, I think I, I begin with something that I've been spending some time on with uh, with a bunch of my friends that I get to do some really big think with. And one of them is a is a dear friend who has created an incredible company called Alpha Rock that I'm helping to to bring their products to the market. It's an artificial intelligence based tool that is going to absolutely transform how consumer sentiment uh, and the patterns of how we all behave changes. And his name is Vinit Kapoor. And I met Vinit in graduate school. And, and this is a first generation American who came from India with just nothing in his pocket as he came to this country. And, and he's done so much good. He posed a question to me and he, and he says, you know, don't we have to ask what it means to be a productive citizen? Don't mm -hmm. we all have to ask mm -hmm. ourselves what it means to be a productive citizen? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you humble yourself to really think about that question, and I'm, you know, I'm here now 52 years of age and still thinking about what, <laughs> what that means and trying to drive that into my career. When I think about the 21, 22 year old that's entering this very fascinating, volatile world that we're in, that question of productive citizen is really powerful, you know, and sort of shines a light on, you know, what does it mean to be connected, uh, that we're all in this together? And we, we seem to be terrible at that as a country right now, the notion of citizenry and to be an informed citizen means you have more than just hyperbolic views mm -hmm. from singular sources of data. I mean, a good citizen is one that absolutely embraces a, that horizontal view. But productive is the one that I really want. I'd want young people thinking about. And productive means, am I relevant? I contribute. Is there a supply and demand mismatch in the marketplace that I can exploit? Notice that I didn't say follow your passion. I'm not mm -hmm. a fan of saying follow your, I, I say follow what you're interested in, but in the end, work is going to dominate a massive part of your life. It's going to consume more than you could possibly know. And if passion was the only way to drive your career, I think it doesn't confront this idea of productive citizens. So passion without productive citizen mm -hmm. to me can lead you down a path of a career that may not create the wealth that you wanted, that may not create the optionality you wanted. Um, and as you step back from it, when I think about the dawn of generative AI, which is now here, I, I think we have a chance to not only imagine the citizen part, but I think we're going to have a moment in the next decade of a transformation in productivity in the workforce that is so seismic that the only analogy that seems to hold from the leaders that I've spent time thinking with is that this is 
this is akin to the moment when man invented fire. Mm -hmm. It's a big, <laughs> I wasn't around, but that's <laughs> a pretty profound moment. Yeah. So to talk about AI in the same context as thinking about the dawn of when mankind, humankind embrace fire, I think that sets you up. If you have a strong liberal arts background, good thinking, good writing background, I think it sets you up to be perhaps one of the most productive citizens. But you have to ask yourself, am I heading into a domain in an area that's saturated with mm -hmm. too many experts where my expertise would not be valued? Am I exploiting an intersection between technologies or convergence between industries in which you, you want to be chasing disruption and productive? I think the machines, if we're all capable, and we have to be, of asking questions, that's where this world is going. The liberal arts degree, the relevancy in the workforce, mm -hmm. we are up-leveling our ability as a species mm -hmm. to ask questions, get an answer, and then ask the next question. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you come in with a consciousness and a view of problem solving that makes everything up until now look like it's milk toast. That <laughs> is profound. Yeah. That is profound. I really like what you said about following what you're interested in because passion without being a productive citizen may not lead to the life that you really want to live and the life that that really contributes and, and leaves a footprint on the earth. I think that is a profound thought as well as, you know, uh, comparing where we are now to to the creation of, of fire. And I think that you know, in, in having these conversations, you might find some alumni or some students that maybe aren't seeing where their path of being a productive citizen lies, and they want to create that. And so I know that you've started your own firms. Entrepreneurialism is really on the rise, and many alumni and students are interested in entrepreneurship. So what advice could you offer people who are interested in starting their own businesses in this day and age? It's a wonderful question. It's funny. I, uh, I, I've spoken when I speak to audiences and, and you know, suddenly you, as soon as you get the, you know, the, the name attached to you mm -hmm. of entrepreneur, mm -hmm. I have found that we glorify entrepreneurship in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, if folks don't read Scott Galloway, they should read Scott Galloway. He's, he's a credible thinker out of uh, NYU, serial entrepreneur, and just a, just a really provocative thinker. Um, but this idea of entrepreneurship, uh, I think is, for me, it was something that was sort of always in the back of my mind. I, when you find out after 20 years that generally speaking, you're underwhelmed with most of your bosses, you might be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You might be an entrepreneur. And at some point, you got to ask yourself, am I going to, you know, try to make the firm better the, and the work that we do? And, and, you know, and that comes with a certain amount of bureaucracy, hierarchy, and politics, which generally I, I have a huge distaste for. I, mm -hmm. I don't like that. I hated I hated grandstanding in the companies I were in. I hated people who got disproportionate attention for things that I thought were nonsense that they got attention for. And then finally, I thought to myself, you know, you know, either stop complaining about it and 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 being a being a, a bug on the wall or do something about it. And so I took the plunge and I I started a company based on an idea. And Ryan, you okay. you shared a lot of you know we're living in this time where you can do this, right? You can literally say, I have an idea. 
And my idea was, I had a lot of vim and vigor. I had some data backing me up, but frankly, I had an instinct. Mm -hmm. The connection between strategy and culture were far more profound than most yeah. people to think about. Mm. And chasing that idea, it's scary. I and mean, when you're mm -hmm. when you're an entrepreneur, it's terrifying. You, know, you have no idea where you're. You know, where's healthcare going to come from? Where's the revenue streams going to come from? Where's where's my where's the talent that I want to work with going to come from? None of that is guaranteed. And yet, when you're working for a big company, now yeah. none of that's guaranteed either. Mm -hmm. we, we see companies that are willing to to sh switch off talent in a minute yeah. you know, as mm -hmm. they chase and worship short-term outcomes. So mm. I'll just say at the outset, when 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 I think about young people pursuit of entrepreneurship, be careful what you ask for is mm -hmm. one of my uh, earliest views of it. And what I mean by that is if you're driving into entrepreneurship and you have no pattern recognition of how the firm works, of what the of what the major elements of a firm's operations are. How do we sell? How will we deliver? What is our plans for growth? What does any of that even mean? How, and by the way, if you don't know the financial aspect of running a company, you are dangerous mm. as an entrepreneur. Yeah. You, yeah. And you're gonna you're gonna attract some people because you have something positive, positive and new, but you could be leading them down some. And this is why the risk reward is so high in the entrepreneurship space. I'll just share that as I've read Scott's work and others, I think we underestimate, and I do, uh, you know, I have some bias as an entrepreneur now. There's people that spend 20 plus years or 30 years in an industry and they create enormous value and wealth in their lives and for their families. And those people aren't celebrated on the cover of Forbes and Fast Company and all these mm -hmm. other magazines. So we have a we have a strange addiction in this country to the the entrepreneurs and then the the rare rare unicorns that become the Elon Musks and others and then we become weirdly worshiping of the <laughs> of the billionaire we worship we worshiped the absolute at our peril we worship the billionaires in this world and they get so much airtime mm -hmm. i think we've got to figure out a way to to balance that but my my thought for the entrepreneurs that are aspiring out there is get yourself in a room where you can be around leaders who you admire mm -hmm. in a sector that you're interested in. And for goodness sake, get the language of business. And you might want to understand a lot about economics mm. before you ask people to join you in your cause, mm. because you might be leading them down some false paths. And entrepreneurship has humbled me more than anything I've done in my life. Mm. I have failed so often in the last decade plus of bad choices, bad decisions, and so many of them come down, by the way. So much of it comes down, as my dad said, to people, right? My dad said it all comes down to people in the end. And so as an entrepreneur, you're going to have moments of pure joy that will be very fleeting, and you're going to have long nights in which the mistakes you make, which will be plentiful, mm -hmm. are going to be played over and over. And, and I've gotten better at beating myself up less for them over time because there's no intrinsic reward for mm -hmm. just beating the heck out of yourself. Mm -hmm. Just be careful as to those aspiring entrepreneurs out there. Be careful what you ask for as an entrepreneur. You might just get it. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's untold stories in this country about the rapid rise and fall of entrepreneurs who have built things. I mean, I even think in the last few years, ride sharing apps have been kind of at the forefront of those. I think the story of Uber and cautionary tales that folks like John List have now come out and written about just what the internal things were going on there with what the culture was like, what was prioritized, what was not prioritized. And you can have an excellent idea. You can put together at least a marketing plan, but Mm -hmm. the business side of it is really important. But you bring up there, Daniel, something that I know that one of the businesses that you've started focuses on issues of culture and strategy within organizations and trying to both quantify and rectify those issues. Mm. So there's this, the old saying that I'm sure folks that are listening are familiar with, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What are some of the most common issues that you see when you work with clients? And what are some of the things that can be done to kind of turn around a company's culture to make it more positive? Really, so it's a cool question. And strategy, let me define strategy for folks. Strategy is the art of leaders making choices about how their organization will thrive or grow. That's what strategy is. You can have fancy PowerPoint decks and competitive analysis and financial analysis and quantitative analysis and wonderful, God bless. In in the end, I've been in the room for tens of thousands of hours of my life. And in the end, you got to make a call. Mm -hmm. What will we focus on? How will we measure the success of that? And by the way, strategy today is about not putting on your map, I call them strategy maps. If you can't get your strategy down to one page in ninth grade to 10th grade language, thank you, Catholic University. Most of my work in the end comes to explaining to CEOs and their leadership teams. It is about simplifying language to make sure that it connects with people. But strategy is about choices, down selection, and about putting in front of you, what are the hardest things we have to work on? And I see a lot of strategy maps that are divorced from the hard things. Culture is the way strategy gets done. Culture is how the how the company works. It has a huge sets of definitions. One, the simplest definition of culture is the way things are done around here, meaning that the way Catholic University's culture operates is fundamentally different than Amazon versus Goldman Sachs. And so if I've seen one culture, I've seen one. That's what I've noticed in terms of my my work. Mm-hmm. But culture, and and when I go in there and I go deeper, and, and someone asks me, what's the more nerdy definition? It's norms, values, behaviors, keep going. Mm-hmm. It's actually the assumptions. Some of the most powerful conversations I've had are what sits in the consciousness of C-suite leaders, CEOs. I've I've worked with dozens and dozens and dozens of CEOs what is in the depth of their consciousness of what they truly believe about how to treat people is one of the most important cultural artifacts in most companies. Hmm. And it drives incredible amounts of decision-making, but you'd be hard pressed to really say that's culture. Yes. The deepest held beliefs about how you treat people. Uh, I'm a big believer in the golden rule. Uh, you know, that's that's in my psyche and, and you got to pull it out. But if you sit there and go, how are we going to operate as a leadership team and how should we operate within the firm? And Brett, you asked me, how do you change culture? Well, first thing you do to change a culture is to first of, first of all, to my C-suite leaders that I was on, you better have a strategy. Culture follows strategy. So doing the hard work to ask, what are our choices? Where will we focus? 
How can we measure? What are the big rocks and the hard things we have to get done? What is the vision? Where are we going? And where are we going, by the way, I think is the most absolutely critical question mm. in the next decades to come. Why do we exist? Purpose. But we have over-indexed a bit on the why movement. Mm. I'm a big believer that the companies that have the ability to step back habitually and look at the inevitable trends that I spoke about earlier yeah. and then do the hard work to do what's called future back planning, they have a higher probability of success. But if your culture is one in which the drag on your culture, and, and my friends at the Barrett Value Center have helped me to use a beautiful phrase, every culture has within it entropy. Entropy is the unproductive fear inside any system. Let me give you guys some entropy-based words that I see in the data when I look and measure culture, because we do measure culture. Bureaucracy, hierarchy, silo mentality, information hoarding, harassment. These are all, all fear-based words that absolutely take away the human capacity to collaborate, to be recognized, to grow, to think together. And every culture, every culture I've ever measured, and I've measured dozens and dozens of them through the analytical tools that we use, every culture has a fair amount of entropy in it. It's the entropy and fear inside a culture that eats alive the highest aspiration of the strategy. That's what he's talking about. So to my to to all the young people that are hopefully going to listen to this and maybe get a nugget out of it, I don't know if I have any wisdom here, but you want to do your work to realize that every company you join will have some percentage of fear inside the organization. It's normal. We have amygdalas. We are born to we 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 have survival instincts that God's given us that are perfected. But your goal is to join a company where the toxicity of fear is low mm -hmm. and the constructive values, collaboration, openness, recognition, client centricity, that these are actually not a plaque on the wall, but these are actually ingrained in the psyche of people. Yeah. That is the work to do when you're finding the firm. And FYI, I've worked in fear-based atmospheres before. They taught me more about culture and as much about culture as when I worked at a company like Sapient that was celebrated around the world in case studies at Harvard and Yale and others for how we live the culture. So just know, even if you're in that toxic environment, this too shall pass. But how the fear was experienced, how you sensed it should give you a pattern recognition that in the next set of interviews you go, I'm never gonna put myself in that environment again. Daniel, switching gears just a can you tell us a little bit about the course that you have that just went live with the University of Maryland? What was it like to create it? And can you talk to us a bit about just your favorite parts working on it, what it was like to create that curriculum? Well, thank you. Thanks for asking about it. So I've, I've written a few books uh, over the time I collaborated with one of my mentors on a book that we published during COVID, a book on mobsters, believe it or not. I don't know if uh, mm -hmm. the... <laughs> The good, cool. the good, the good uh, leaders of Catholic U is a good, good Catholic school kid studying mobsters. We did. Uh, I've written a, I wrote my first book about twelve years ago on this world that you know really helped me to frame my view of where the world was going and the and the value of deep reflective thinking in a world that just doesn't seem to value it anymore. And yet that's the origin of so much of the greatest ideas, the the the, the changes and the and the companies and others. It's the companies that have deep 
reflective thinkers that are able to give time to that, that make a difference. So those two are in my sights. And I've spent a lot of time with leaders and companies asking the question, where are we going? Mm-hmm. And as I, I think I, I've shared, I mean, I, I think where is the new why, right? Where, where is the company going is a call from employees asking, you know, do you see down the road? And and I did a lot of research before I decided to do a course. And I was going to write a book on this because I've I've helped so many leaders to define visions and to and to imagine. And that's that's a huge component of this imagination mm-hmm. of, of, of where the world will go, confronting the inevitable trends. And I realized that, you know, I loved, I like writing a lot. I love writing books and and I maybe, maybe I've got a few more left in me as my life goes on. But I also thought that I wondered if I could challenge myself to, to do it in a different format. And I was very fortunate to meet an, an, an incredible leader from the University of Maryland School of Engineering, a guy named John Johnson. And John, a friend of mine introduced me and he, and he said, Daniel, this, you're, what you're talking about has the chance to be a massive open online course. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty amazing. And in this world of micro-credentialing, it made me realize, you know, figure out how to do that. So I made my life harder. It, you asked me, Ryan, what it was like. It, it's, yeah. like it's kind of terrifying because teaching is, <laughs> I'll be honest, that writing, writing a book is, for me, is, real, you know, writing, writing is very intuitive for me. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, you know, when I've, I've written things that I can't even, I don't even remember writing some of the things that writing just sort of flows through me, but teaching, teaching means you actually have an objective that mm-hmm. and the two of you, by the way, are going to vote on it. Like I'm, I'm ready to get <laughs> bored by students. Like did I deliver? So it was absolutely frightening to do it. I had an incredible mentor. And when I, when I go after a topic, I, I'm a firm believer in the art of asking other people to spend time with you. I think that is one of the, one of the mm-hmm. secret sauces. If I, you know, if I have any, of, of if, if I've had any success in my life, and this goes back all the way to my days at, at Catholic University, having the audacity to pick up a phone, send an email and appeal to people with expertise mm-hmm. and asking them not for a job, not for a lead, asking them for coaching, asking them for insights, I think has been one of the truly most transformative parts of my whole career. Mm. I've always done that. I've always had that ability to reach out. And in this course, I interviewed dozens of leaders from around the world, Mm -hmm. from Japan, from Australia, psychologists, economists, because I asked myself the question, what don't I know about vision, which is a massive. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, creating the course, editing the course, thinking of how to do it and then storytelling within it, I'll say, I'm proud of it. It's live. It's up on a platform called edX. I was also told that Coursera has picked it up, which is pretty cool. So that's that. yeah. congratulations. Um, yeah. Hundreds of millions of people. I mean, that that was the thing that really drew me to it was your addressable audience in these platforms is so significant that your head spins. You're, and, and what I learned also, by the way, people consume the content. Uh, I'm watching, I get a dashboard of people around the world are taking this. I a book might have landed in someone's lap in China, might have landed in India, might have landed in Australia, and I have sold books around the world. But this is a level of connection that I've never seen coming. And I'm actually working on a second course with, uh, in collaboration with John Johnson. And we, we we're also dreaming about some stuff to come. So I've, I've learned a lot. I hope it's entertaining and informing, but it's also, believe it or not, you get a micro-credential at it from the University of Maryland School of Engineering. Yeah. And that was astounding to me that... Mm know that that could be part of it so to me i 
I learned a lot. And I, when I did it, I, I, I selfishly, when I write books and other things, I often do it because I want to know what do I believe. Mm -hmm. And if I know what I believe, it's made me more valuable to the leaders who ask me to problem solve with them. So that's, that's always been a, a bit of a, a theme in my career. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, congratulations mm -hmm. on the course and its publication. We will link to it for folks that are listening in the show description if you want to find it. We'll also put a link to each of Daniel's books if you want to find those. Well, Daniel, Ryan, we've reached our blast from the past segment. This is where we take a dive into the university archives to see what was going on around Catholic University at the time of our guest's career as a student. And if we can find something about our guest, then we like to include it. So looking for Daniel Forrester, I found several things, but one really pops out to me, and it comes from The Tower from an article from April 16th. 1993. So you were getting ready to graduate when this happened, but it seems like this was a pretty significant event that you were part of. So I'm going to read portions of it, and if you want to follow along, you can click on the link in the show description. The headline is, After 100 Days, How Was Clinton Doing? Nationally known journalists and political insiders will assess President Clinton's performance at the Run to 100 conference this Thursday. C-SPAN and MTV have been invited to attend. He's a new president and a young president, one of the youngest we've ever had. All of a sudden, people now feel like we have a chance, said Kevin Anaskovich, executive director of the conference. A panel discussion anchored by Charles Bierbauer of CNN's Newsmaker Saturday will be held at 1 p.m. Then at 7 p.m., Duke University professor and presidential scholar James David Barber will deliver the conference address. Now we're getting to the, the good meat of the article. The idea for the conference came to Daniel Forrester, a senior English major, in December after he had seen similar programs at George Washington and American universities. Then, using the offices of the University Center Board and University Center West, and borrowing money from the undergraduate student government to cover honoraria, the small group of five or six planners went to work. This came together in an unbelievable fashion, Forrester said. We're going to skip down just a little bit because we want to get back to uh, the panel itself and what you had to say. The panel will address five issues, educational reform, healthcare reform, budgetary matters or appropriations, foreign policy, and the media. I know we don't usually do things like this, but I think this might get some people motivated to continue, Forrester said. The panel discussion, which will welcome questions from the audience, will last roughly one and a half hours. So it sounds like you were instrumental in putting together a, a very important discussion evaluating the first 100 days of a brand new presidential term with President Clinton in 1993. So, Daniel, what was that experience like? How did the idea really come to you? I'm sure it, it, just, it just didn't hit you in the face, but what was this process like? How did the event go? Just any reflections you have on this moment in time in the university's history, we'd love to hear. Mm -hmm. I, I've got a big smile on my face as you guys <laughs> Um, good uh, and by the way boy i'm getting old uh so that was, <laughs> that was my I'm like wow that, that i i had forgotten about that i did i knew we were covered in it i hadn't really thought about this so thank you for thanks for doing that and you got me thinking so a couple things jumped back at me at that time kevin and, and i are still friendly and uh, kevin was a uh, behind me at catholic u and and a, a go-getter i just loved working with him and Frank DeRosa uh, was another dear friend, my roommate at the time, and uh, someone I'm, I remain close to. And uh, these guys, we were just batting ideas around. But I, when I was working at Fox News, I, you know, I was working 20, 30 hours a week at Fox News in my senior year, Catholic U. So I was already kind of 
doing the workforce thing. I'm on the phone with newsmakers. I'm in the middle of the news cycle. I covered the election of Bill Clinton, and I, I was I was more on the conservative side back then. And, and when Clinton took over, it was seismic. Uh, you know, a young president, right? And and the analogies to Kennedy and others. And I and I remember thinking to myself because when you work in a platform like Fox, and you're you know I'm I'm working with famous people that you know. Uh, Paul Amos, uh, the man who ran the Fox News service, he was one of the pioneers on CNN. That guy was around me at the age of 21. And I'm working with Cynthia Baker, Howard Baker's daughter. Howard Baker was the was the the House minority majority leader, one of the most powerful Senate or Senate majority leader. And so, uh, you know, I'm picking up phone calls from Howard Baker and I'm thinking to myself, you know, how come Catholic U is not on the map uh, doing these events that I'm watching all over town, and I, um, I had come back from England working in the British Parliament, so politics was like right in my sights. Working in the media, and I, I don't remember the moment I, 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 I hatched it, but I definitely thought that the first 100 days do set a tone for a presidency, and I had studied that a bit, and then I thought, why not us? And you know, this is where that goes back to the theme of. You know, I remember reading in Steve Jobs's biography, he he made a phone call, he said, to one of the founders of Hewlett Packard. Literally, I think it was Bill Packard picked up the phone when a young Steve Jobs, before he had even, I think he was working at Atari at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was, I, I, I didn't come upon that until later in my life, but I my version of that was calling Jack Germond, who was at the time, and Fred Barnes, they were two of the most famous political talking heads and Jack Germond covered more presidential campaigns than you could imagine. I don't think I've ever been so nervous in my life dialing a <laughs> phone call, calling up a cold calling a journalist who's on television every Sunday on a famous show at the time called the McLaughlin Group. And I remember Jack Germond picking up the phone and wow. he said, this is Jack Germond. And I, I'm pretty sure like I get nervous even thinking about it because I'm, I'm talking to a legend and I said, hi, I'm Daniel Forrester. I'm from Catholic U and we're doing this panel and, and sir, I'd be so honored. If... And he says to me on the call, well, what's the date? And then I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe he picked up. I couldn't believe he just asked me the date and I gave him the date. And he said, I think that can work to so count me in. Wow. And, and I and I was electric and I just realized, you know, life is about picking up the phone call and calling Jack Germont. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Right? Yeah, and, mm-hmm. then, you know, and then I did that once, and then I realized I got him, and then I got you know Fred Barnes came on board. Um, Kate O'Byrne, who uh, she's passed away. Kate O'Byrne was one of the one of the leading conservative women thinkers in the country. The uh, I mean th- these were these were extraordinary people to to meet and interact with, and then to put it in a setting. I, I had to pick it. I remember where at Catholic U was I going to do it, and I and I remember. The architecture school is so gorgeous, and I'm a bit of a sucker for you know making sure you got the right scene. And I found this auditorium that I you know I, I know that I'm sure it's still in that room. And that morning, that day, my dad flew down, which I remember. My dad flew down on the shuttle, and I put him center, which was just wonderful to have my dad to be able to watch us. He was huge to huge political junkie, and and you know looking out and seeing my dad in that audience was so so powerful for me. But the idea of just making the phone call, bringing them to the campus, Catholic University is a platform for any student out there. You have a chance to attract people to that platform. 
And my big advice here is be audacious and make the phone call to Jack Germond. It might just change your life. And it did for me. And that was a, that really helped me to, you know, to, to turn on the next chapter of my career. But I also think it probably set in motion this idea of just how do you manage the fear an appeal to expertise. None of us have the right answer and chat GPT won't have all the answers, but humbling yourself to appeal to people who you want to learn with, think with. Uh, I, I think it started there and and uh, what a trip down memory lane because it was a small set of months in my life. But I think the big lesson was uh, you if you call, they will come. Mm-hmm. And, and thank you for that trip down, as Robin Williams said, amnesia lane. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that for that memory because it, it's it, it's one that sits really nicely in my consciousness. Daniel, I think that the advice that you've given is is a great note to leave with students and with the community that's listening to this particular podcast episode. The I think that that is profound advice. Taking advantage of the serendipity that comes from picking up the phone and you know, using that and growing from it professionally and personally, it it is a journey and it's going to have lots of different twists and turns and pivots. And I want to thank you, Daniel, for sharing all of the gems that you've picked up along the way as you've navigated the different changes that you've been able to be at the the forefront of and experiencing. Thank you for continuing to to push in your journey and turning around and giving that back to others. Well, thank you. My uh, my pleasure. It's uh, it's it's really wonderful to to be thinking with both of you and to to have you guys reach out and and I you know it's been amazing to me over the years that um, I'm. I'm surprised, frankly, that I haven't had as many uh, Catholic U kids reach out. And uh, I went to my graduate school. I get them. I, I'm just I, I'm encouraging and inviting all the all the the young people that are going to listen to this. Be fearless. Be absolutely fearless. Uh, one of my friends taught me a lot about. Um, I've been reading a lot about Churchill, and Churchill mm-hmm. described that courage. Courage is the key virtue that without courage, there's no other virtues. And I I think that idea of calling, of reaching out, for every person that's not returned my phone call, nine have, Mm. nine have. And then listening to them, I I can't tell you what a difference it's made in my life. So I'm just thankful to you and and Brett for the work that you guys are doing and for the future of liberal arts education in a a wonderful school in a wonderful city in Washington, D.C. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. of course. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate your time and your insights. Yes, for sure. Thank you. And as always, thank you for listening to this episode of Cardinal Conversations. Yeah, always a pleasure to do this with you, Ryan. And we are grateful to our guests, as well as to the Center for Academic and Career Success and the Office of Alumni Engagement for allowing us to partner together to hear and learn from our alumni career stories. Yeah, you can find links to resources for the blast from the past and other interesting things in the show description in your podcast app. If you'd like to support the students, research, and mission of the Catholic University of America. You can also click on the giving link in the show description as well. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Until next time.